Okay, we're going to finish up our study tonight on times and seasons. So I have all these guests here. So we're going to give a quiz. All right, Amber, <laughs> let you start us off. No, we'll let Jarrell do that. Got to lead the way, right, men? Yeah. <laughs> all right. From God's Word, we now know what a day is. What is a day? Help me out. Help these guys out. What is a day? Evening and morning is the first day. That's from Genesis 1, the Genesis account. God reckons the beginning of a day is at sunset, and it goes till sunset, not midnight to midnight, because there's spiritual truth there, right? That we start off with darkness, and then comes light, and once the light comes, there's never darkness again for that day. And so the day starts at sunset, from creation on, before there was sin even, God defined a day, and that remained true in the Hebrew calendar and in the, in the biblical definition that it would begin at sunset, go to the next sunset, still practiced today in the Jewish community uh, with regard to their holidays, like Passover. It's at sunset Friday. It's really the beginning of the Sabbath uh, for them, and, or a sunset is the beginning of Passover, whatever day of the week that lands on. So that's our definition of a day. Biblically, let's define a, what's the next thing? A week. Let's define a week. Goes from the first day of the week to the seventh day of the week, right? What is the first day of the week? It's, we call it now the Lord's Day from creation. What was it? From Genesis. The seventh day, God hallowed and made it, set it apart and said, you'll rest on the seventh day. How do we establish the seventh day? We would call it Saturday, is what they celebrate in Israel today. Is that a biblical? Okay, not according to Scripture is what I'm more concerned about. And that is because when does the week start, it starts on a new moon. So the new moon, so you have to go outside at night to see when the week starts of your month, what your month start is when your week start. And so from scripture we know we go out and we look for a new moon, and that new moon is not day one, that's day zero. The day after that is day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The seventh day is the Lord's Sabbath. And from the Old Testament period. And so that would change. It's, remember, we're not on a Hebrew calendar. Not even Israel today is on a Hebrew calendar. They are on the same type of calendar that we are on. What kind of calendar are we using? Do you know? The Gregorian calendar. We, uh, early in the time of Jesus, it would have been the Julian calendar, Roman calendar, uh, that is solar. And so it goes upon the... the movement of the sun, uh, a Hebrew calendar goes upon the movement of the moon, and so you need to go out and know when there's a new moon, that that's day zero, and then you can start and say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the seventh day is the Sabbath, uh, and that's going to change every single month, correct? Compared to what day of the week it is. So if you have your Seventh-day Adventists who say we're going to worship on Saturday instead of Sunday, and you who worship on Sunday instead of Saturday are Antichrist, which is what they teach, that you are following the ways of the Antichrist, which is going to come into play tonight. 
that therefore uh, we're the right church and you're the wrong church. Uh, you're the, the church of sin if you worship on this day. I thought every day you should worship, but apparently you can only have church on the Sabbath, uh, Saturday. But they're wrong because they're reckoning it from a Gregorian calendar, from a Roman calendar, instead of a Hebrew calendar, which starts at the new moon. And so the new moon is day zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the seventh day, and that forms a week. And that also tells us when a month is. So how many days are in a month biblically? There's 29. All right? So you have a new moon, seven days, seven days, seven days. That's 24 times. That's, seven, that's 28. And then you have another new moon. And so that gives you 29 days in a month in the Hebrew calendar, which does what to your seasons? Because 29 times 12 doesn't equal 365, does it? And that's why every now and then, the Hebrews have a 13th month every so often. And in fact, that's coming up on us in, in 2022. So they're going to have 13 months instead of 12 that year because they have to shift that to get the seasons right. Because the new moon that we're worried about is a new moon, a specific new moon that God calls us to, and that is the new moon of the early rains. And we're not talking about the rains in Albuquerque because that would be like in July. It's the rains in Israel. Okay, the early rains, and so that new moon. So to keep that seasonally correct, they have to add a 13-month every so often. So we find out that our reckoning of times is a little bit different than the biblical reckoning of times, and it affects these ideas of when are we worshiping. And so it wipes out that whole uh, Judaistic view that somehow Saturday is the right day to worship, and I always kind of look at people as like, you should read your Bible and find out when the week starts. Because it doesn't start on uh, January 1st of, you know, or whatever. It doesn't start on this Roman calendar date. It starts according to a moon cycle. And therefore, what day of the Roman calendar week is the Sabbath changes every month. Some months it's Monday, some months it's Tuesday, some months it's Wednesday, some months it's Thursday, some months Friday, some months it does land on Saturday, some months it lands on Sunday. So it, it, it... varies every month because it's set up on a different calendar. So we're learning biblical times. Then we went into the holidays, the celebrations that God demanded in the law. And again, we looked at those as Christological with a single exception. What was the single exception that we found wasn't Christological? Out of Scripture that we say. It's not given in the law, but in another portion of Scripture. Purim, yep, Purim is the only one that is not given in the law that really doesn't have a Christological backdrop to it. So when we look at the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, we look at the Feast of Trumpets, we look at the Day of Atonement, we look at the Feast of Tabernacles, we have laid out for us a wonderful presentation of Christ in every one of those. When we go to the Purim, the two-day Feast of Purim, This is to commemorate a historical event of God's deliverance in the book of Esther. And then we have another one that is extra biblical, at least according to our Bibles. If you have a Bible like uh, a Catholic Bible with the Maccabean books in it, if you have an Orthodox Bible, it will have the the Maccabean books. So therefore it is in their scriptures. What would be that holiday for the Jewish community? Hanukkah. 
So Purim specifically says, if the nations want to join us in celebrating us, that's fine. But this is really a, 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 a national holiday. It's kind of like an Independence Day. It's not portrayed in the law. And so we looked at the, the correlation between the work of Christ and the legal, the law-given holidays. So obviously Passover is when Christ what? What happened to Christ on Passover? Come on, help me out. Ah, so we have Christ's arrest, trial, and crucifixion all happening on Passover. Passover is not a Sabbath day. It's not a high Sabbath. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is. So this is the day of Christ uh, because it happens at sunset. So he institutes the Lord's table, has the Sabbath, the Passover meal with his disciples, institutes the communion table. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. We have the prayer in Gethsemane. We have the betrayal by Judas. We have his arrest, his, his midnight trial, so to speak, his trial early in the morning of Passover day and his crucifixion that day. And before sunset of Passover, he is in the grave. So is Passover an important time for us? Should be. We should be commemorating the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we learned a couple of weeks ago was what day of the week for us? It was Thursday. It wasn't a Friday. It wasn't Good Friday. It was Thursday. And we could demonstrate that through Scripture pretty clearly. Um, and so, and we did that. So then we come to the concept. So each one of these holidays is like that. Feast of Unleavened Bread. We have, again, the, and the Feast of Pentecost, we, uh, and, or the weeks. Uh, what happens in Pentecost? What was the promise of Jesus Christ? I go to the Father, what's going to happen? I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. That happened at Pentecost, another Jewish holiday. And so we have all of these in the law given to us, and we abandon the, the practice of, of commemorating them and celebrating them to our detriment because they are heavy in Christological information. Uh, with one exception, they have all historically been fulfilled by Christ, except for one we want to talk about tonight. Which one is it that hasn't been fulfilled by Christ? Feast of trumpets. We have no Christological historical thing tied to the Feast of Trumpets. And so we study the Feast of Trumpets. We talked about when it is in our calendar. It's coming up on us very soon. Uh, some people think, well, the Feast of Trumpets uh, was to commemorate Christ's first coming, which is uh, right in the right, about the same time frame because it would have been aligned with Christ's birth. You guys know when Christ was born, right? By the way, um, Saturday, September 10th, my place, you're all welcome to come celebrate Christ's birthday because that's when it... What I say? Oh, September 11th. Yeah, sorry. No, that's a Friday. Saturday. Actually, it is Friday because it starts at Friday sunset, so it really... Yeah, you can stay all night, as long as you do the dishes in the morning. Yeah. But uh, so, so September 11th, we know Christ was born then, in the evening, and you guys are going, what is this guy talking about, right? I proved it. That's why all these people are just nodding, right? And so between 6 and 8 in the evening, on September 11th, um, 3 B.C., Christ was born, and some people associate that with the Feast of Trumpets, but we have another event that we're looking for for the Feast of Trumpets that has a huge Christological element. What is that? 
when the trumpet shall, shall sound. Okay, the rapture of the church. And so let's go ahead in our Bibles, 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at several passages here, and then we're going to go back into Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, boy, I'm still marked at 1 Peter. I preached on that this morning. That's ancient history. So we have 1 and 2 Thessalonians both have our dressing, because that was the concern of the Thessalonican church, is that they had missed the coming of the Lord. And so chapter 4, verse 13, uh, Paul tells them, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And this is the state of the church that we are striving so hard to get rid of, and that is ignorance. We don't know, because we haven't been teaching the Bible very well. Not, well, very thoroughly. Let's say we haven't been teaching it thoroughly. Because we have the influence of many years of church tradition and, and commentaries and all that with their very views and their, very, and their uh, disconnection a lot of times from Hebrew culture, we have a lot of things that, just been, that most Christians are ignorant of. We're largely too ignorant of what the biblical holidays are. We know when Cinco de Mayo is, and that's not even a holiday in this country, but it's not one in Mexico either, really. Did you know that? They don't really, it's not a big deal. It's only a big deal up here. I don't know why. Because um, we like fireworks and drinking, I guess. I don't know. Um, so we know all these, but we don't know the biblical ones that we are called to. We know to the December 25th, but we're not called to the biblical ones. And so we wanted to focus on those. Uh, Paul was concerned that the Thessalonican uh, weren't ignorant. Ignorance is not stupid. Ignorance is, I don't have the information. I can fix ignorant. I can't fix stupid. The way you fix ignorant is you teach so that you can be informed. And so he wants us not to be ignorant. So let's read verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. That means dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an angel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And then chapter 5, verse 1. You ready? The chapter divisions were added later, so he's continuing the same thought. But concerning the times... And the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. This is actually the first verse that gave me the title for this whole series, and we got to it at the last night of the series. The times and seasons. Are we ignorant of the times and seasons? Paul says, you Thessalonians, I didn't leave you ignorant of the times and seasons. I taught them to you. Part of, now the Thessalonican church was largely Gentile. There were Jewish people there for sure, but predominantly, this is in the country of Greece, this is largely Gentiles. They needed to be trained, like we need to be trained on what's a day, what's a week, what's a month, where, when are the Jewish holidays, what is Christ's relationship to those, what should we be celebrating throughout the year, how should we be celebrating these things throughout the year. All of them are mostly eating except for one. Which one are you not supposed to eat during? Day of... Atonement. It's the only one you're supposed to afflict your soul. All the rest, feast, 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 feast. Isn't that great? God wants you to eat in front of him. 
one day out of the year, be sorrowful. The day of atonement. When you think about what your sin cost your Savior. Afflict your soul, it says, during that day to be reminded of what your sin cost Jesus Christ. And so we have, concerning the times and seasons, you Thessalonians, you know this. I taught you this. I don't have to write these things to you because you were taught. Now, verse 2, for you yourselves know perfectly, wow, that's a great condition to know perfectly, that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And when we say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, then they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So they were concerned that they missed the day of the Lord, that some of the Christians were dying and Jesus Christ hadn't come back yet. That's how convinced they were that the coming of Christ was soon. And Paul says, no, I told you, I've trained you about the times and seasons, that the conditions aren't right for that. You shouldn't be looking for his coming. And whenever he does come, those who are passed away or fallen asleep in Christ are not going to miss out. In fact, they're going to precede you in the resurrection. They're going to be resurrected. We'll be translated is the word we use where we go from this mortal and put on immortality. We call it translation. What happened to Elijah? Um, what uh, happened to Enoch? They were translated. They will come back and die uh, physically, but we in Christ who are alive and remain will be caught up with them. So we join the resurrected uh, rather than we going in the resurrected being missed out. That's the Jehovah's Witness way. Okay? The 144,000 only ones that get to enjoy the kingdom. The rest of you just get to live on earth and continue your way even after Christ comes. That's, not, that's your only hope is to survive. For the Jehovah's Witness, if they die now, they have no thing, nothing for them in eternity. Only the first 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses they call the John class get to participate in the kingdom of God. The best you can hope for is to be alive when Jesus comes and you get to live on earth the rest of your life because he'll wipe out death. But if you die before that, you're without hope. You just cease to exist. How's that for a great hope? So we have a better hope than that, don't we? So the times and seasons God doesn't want you to be ignorant of. He wants you to understand what day, weeks, he, he spells it all out for you, but he also spells out for you the macro, the big things, like what era are we in? Are we in the last times? And that's all given to him. The Thessalonians thought, well, we're in the last times, and, and it's going to happen in our generation. They actually thought that, and they were concerned that someone in their generation died. A Christian died. Ah, what happened? That wasn't supposed to happen. Well, lots of Christians died. Many of them were martyred. Um, but they were confused and they, and they misunderstood this and they weren't perfectly knowledgeable of it. So Paul's reminding them what he's really already taught them, but they have let others 
affect their thinking and rob them of their hope. And so he reminds them of this trumpet. And because of the connection to the Feast of Trumpets, every September I get kind of excited because that's when the Feast of Trumpets is, usually the end of August, early September. And so that's coming up on us this year. So I'm always, if I'm a little antsy this time of year, that's why. Because the Lord might be coming. This might be the year. And I always look for it around the Feast of Trumpets. But we're not sure exactly when the Feast of Trumpets are because we don't know what a new moon is. Right? What's a new moon? It's either the dark moon, like we celebrate, or it's a full moon because the psalmist says that during the new moon, it's bright. And the new moon isn't bright. A new moon week, what we call a new moon is a dark moon, and that's not a bright moon. And so the new moon is probably a full moon. And so we connect these things and we start saying, well, the Feast of Trumpets, I'm looking for the time and season. But that's not all we're looking for. So it's not any Feast of Trumpets. It's a specific one. And so we have lots of information in God's Word that don't look for it till this, till this, till this. So we're going to go into 2 Thessalonians, but before we do that, let's go to Matthew. All right, let me take you to Matthew 24. Are we in the time and seasons that we should be looking in this generation for. And what I'm going to do is give you a lot of verses that tell us that there were things we should have been waiting for, why the first generation wasn't planning on Christ returning while they were alive. We, and so let's just look at a few of these. All right. So this is Matthew 24, called the Olivet Discourse, if you've ever heard that, where Jesus answered a question. And the question is in verse 3. Uh, he, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Three questions, right? But they've combined the idea of when is your coming and the end of the age. That's really one question, because those are simultaneous events. When Christ comes, it's the end of one age and the beginning of another age. So they're asking, when will this happen? So two questions. What, when will the things be that you just talked about? What did he just talk about? He just talked about the destruction of the temple. Uh, is the temple destroyed? Is there a temple on the Temple Mount today? No. It has been destroyed. So the answer to the first question is a near event that's going to happen in many of their lifetime. Most of them are going to be alive to see what Christ said, that not one stone would remain upon another of the temple that they were admiring. So he's going to answer that question. He's also going to answer the other questions. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So let's see. All these things are going to happen that tell us the end of the age is not coming yet. Here we go. You ready? Uh, Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. What does that tell you? A lot of people are going to give you a lot of ideas that aren't true. Let's stick to God's word. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is what? Not yet. That's before the end. Right? So the end of time, of this age, of this period, is not yet. As long as there's wars and rumors of wars, as long as there's false teachers going out there deceiving, saying, I am the Christ, don't worry, it's not the end yet. 
Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Is it the end of sorrows? Is it the end of the age? It's the beginning. Who's sorrowing? Not the evildoers. The sorrows he's talking about are the things you're going to have to endure. The disciples. He says, says, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated for all, by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and deceive many. Because of lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then what, class? The end will come. So the end won't come as long as these other, these other things have to happen first. And among them, he's going to get more specific here about the destruction of the temple in verse 15 and following. We're not going to look into those too much uh, through 15 through 27 is really 28, the destruction of the temple. So all these things have to happen, and the end is not yet. You're going to have to endure all of this. Uh, And this is the whole church age. The disciples experienced that. Did people hate the disciples? Did they murder them? Yeah. And in fact, one of them had to die. Christ could not come back until that one disciple died. All right, let's go to John, and we'll prove it here. Let's go to the end of the Gospel of John. We know for a fact that one of them had to die. So therefore, the disciples weren't looking for Christ coming until this guy for sure was off the scene. In John chapter 21... Verse 18 says, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Thus he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Who's he talking to? Peter. What did he just prophesy to Peter? That Peter was going to die a martyr's death. So could Christ come as long as Peter was walking the earth? No. That would make Jesus a liar. So we know that Christ couldn't have come in that, as long as Peter was alive. We know from Matthew 24 that all these things have to happen. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, all of these false teachers, all things that correlate with, Matthew, with Revelation 6 and the four horsemen. And you've, these guys have heard me teach that the four horsemen are not the horsemen of the apocalypse, but of the church age, that all these things go on for thousands of years, 2,000 years or so. Well, 1,980 years, because it's not 2021, is it? What year is it, the year of our Lord? It's the 90s, so it's the 1990s, so kind of fun. We're almost getting to the turn of the millennium. It's coming. We just started at the wrong place. We started at Christ's birth instead of Christ's death, which the Bible tells begin your calendar, begin your count at the death of Christ. So we're off by 30 years or so. Okay? Yeah, we're off. So we're coming up to the turn of the millennium. We haven't reached year 2000 yet from Christ's death. And so Daniel tells us that. Daniel says, mark the time when Messiah is cut off. Well, cut off means dead. Mark is death. That's when you start. And now there's a period of time filled with wars, filled with pestilence, and then he'll come again and establish his kingdom. 
And so that's what he's, Jesus Christ is predicting here. And so he's telling us all of this, that you're going to have to endure this. Disciples, you're going to have this. So all these things had to happen. Jerusalem had to fall. Peter had to die. Wars and rumors of wars. False teachers. Famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. Earthquake yesterday in Haiti again. You know, 10 years ago they got plastered. And now they got it again. Uh, and so uh, we have earthquakes in various places. These are not really what we're looking at for the end of the age. So what are we looking for? Well, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. What can we look for, Pastor? Something's got to indicate to us. And, and we can see a lot of prophetic fulfillments. Uh, the fact that we have a country called Israel on the earth today is a big deal. You're enjoying that, aren't you? I hope you're enjoying that because... For 1,950 years, there was no country on the earth called Israel. You're living at a time when there's a country on earth called Israel. Uh, and so we know that we're in our last time period. We're, we're getting, drawing very close. Uh, we also uh, have images that talk. The Bible says, the nation that brings out images that talk, beware, woe, Watch out. Habakkuk tells us that in Habakkuk chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13. Watch out for the nation that can make pictures talk. We live in a time when pictures talk, correct? Boy, do we ever. Right? And then it says people are going to worship that pictures that talk. Do people worship pictures that talk? Just watch the world. Define worship. What is worship? giving adoration and attention to. What do you adore and give your attention to? Is it reality or is it the phone? We call it reality, but it's pictures that talk. And now we're even taking church to pictures that talk instead of face-to-face. -face. So the Bible says when you have pictures that talk and, you are, and the world demands that you worship pictures that talk instead of in person, the time is coming. Okay? We've also seen fire come down from heaven in the sight of men, also prophesied in Revelation 13, already happened, right? So a lot of these things already happened, but let's see what Thessalonians tells us about the very end, because that's really what they were worried about. So 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 1. This is exactly the question of the end of time and seasons for us. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, isn't that what we're concerned about? That's exactly the question tonight. So let's let the Bible answer it. Do not be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. They thought it had already come. And there are some that teach that today as well. Let no one deceive you, again, lots of people are going to tell you misinformation, by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with, still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only who now restrains will do so until he, it, is taken away, out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, 
whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And we're going to stop there. We aren't going to concern ourselves with a strong delusion that will come later. So, we're supposed to be the not ignorant, the informed. We're supposed to be the light bearers who are walking in the light. We're not going to be surprised by a thief because we're not living in the dark. No one's sneaking around in here. Um, if somebody was sneaking around, I could see them because the lights are on. So none of this should sneak up on any Christian. No Christian should be surprised at the coming of the Lord because the Bible tells you a lot of information, a huge amount of information about it. It's one of the, uh, in terms of just the number of verses dedicated to that is just incredible. Uh, when you think of entire books of the Bible, at least chapters after chapter about it, you have this information. And so we're supposed to be informed, we're supposed to be alert, we're supposed to be looking for these things and uh, know what is entailed. So there are two aspects that we are expecting at the very end of this age. A great falling away. The falling away has happened first. That is, that we, what are we falling away from? What do you think? The truth, all right? We're not following the truth. He says later on, he references falling away at the beginning. At the end, it says, but you are not of those to be deceived. The falling away is the effect of following deception. Are we in the community of faith being deceived? That's the question. Are we following every deceptive teaching, or are we committed to God's word? That is the premise here. If you are a student of God's word and you are a believer of its truth, pointed Jesus Christ, then you should not be susceptible to this deception of the falling away. Remember, there are deceivers that are going to come saying, I am the Christ. They're not going to come and say, I'm Satan. They're going to come and say, I am the Christ. I'm telling you good news from the Bible and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands follow them. Because that is the falling away. That's what a falling away looks like. It looks like and sounds like and is even presented to you as if it's a revival. This is a great thing happening. This is a huge movement. And you start to evaluate and you find out, oh, this is nasty. And it takes sometimes decades before the nasty gets found out, doesn't it? And then suddenly the leaders start falling and we start finding out their lifestyle and we find, and one after another. And throughout my entire life, these guys have just been fallen. Fallen, fallen, fallen. And my, I have to pray on a regular basis, Lord, I don't want to be one of those. I want to be genuine. I want to be the real deal. I want to stand. I want to be a preserver of truth, not a subverter of truth in my life. So we all have to make that commitment. But recognize that the falling away is the church following the deceivers rather than the truth. They are those that, as Thessalonians tells us, that they are caught in this darkness of deception. And notice, um, it, it leads us to unrighteousness, so we're, we're abandoning holy living. We don't love the truth anymore. And please notice at the end of verse 10, you're not really saved. 
because one of the attributes, one of the qualities of the true follower of Jesus Christ is they love the truth. Your word is truth, the Bible says. Now, what do you do when you have something you love? You put it on a shelf and ignore it, right? What do you do with something you love? You study it. What else do you do? You share it. What else do you do? You keep it close to you, handy, nearby. How much time do you spend with the things you love? Okay. Now, examine your life. Do you love this book? Do you love the truth enough to spend time in it, to devour, to hunger and thirst after the righteousness it teaches you? Do you know it? Or are you, like the Thessalonians, in jeopardy of being ignorant? You see, it's in the ignorance of the truth that deception happens. And if we say, I'm a lover of the truth, but we're not in the truth, and we're not reading it and studying it, the Word of God, and we're not following Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life, with all of our effort and energy, then we are going to be in this unholy deception that's called the falling away, which we see rampant, not just in this country, but all over the world. What we're dealing with in Rwanda is the government trying to stop false teachers. Because the church wasn't. That's what's going on for the last two years. The government is trying to stop all these people coming in, deceiving all the Rwandans and taking all their monies uh, on false pretenses. And the government was watching it happen and said, this is no good. If you're really a faith, and it wasn't just Christian people doing this. They, they did it to Muslims, Hindus, didn't matter what your faith was. We're, here are the requirements. For you to be a valid church, mosque, synagogue, whatever, you have to meet these requirements. And a lot of our churches didn't. And so that's what we've been doing, is getting those churches up to those minimal requirements of the government. Why did the government institute those? Because of the, the deception going on. And shame on us that the government figures it out before the church figures it out. It says, we've got to stop this stuff. Well, that's what's going on. So it's not just here, and it's not just in the mega movement. that And, and the, you know, Timothy, of course, Paul tells Timothy that people will be want to hear what their itching ears want to hear, they'll heap up for themselves teachers. They'll tell them what they want to hear. What is a heap? Is that like two or three? Five? <laughs> a pile. A heap is a pile. There's a pile of these guys out there. They're easy to find. They're the majority. And so be careful because that's one of the evidences and it's going to be not just in one place, not localized. We're talking about earthwide. We're talking about all the edges of the earth being touched with this kind of deception. And this is going on in everywhere I've gone. You know, you've sent me on these trips, and, and in India, wow, you know, they have, there are some teachers that aren't even, they're, they're quote-unquote Christian, that aren't even allowed in the country anymore, and they're from that country. Do you know who I'm talking about? big faith healer from India who's not allowed back in India anymore because he's taken advantage of the people so badly in the past. You know? Yeah, it's okay. I don't want to put his image in. 
This is what's going on country after country after country. Deception is the norm when it comes to not only the Christian faith, but a lot of them. Of taking advantage of people and the falling away from the truth. All right, what's the second thing the Thessalonians have to wait for? The end will not come until this happens. What was the second thing? The man of sin should be revealed. The man of sin is on the scene, the son of perdition. That's at the end of verse 3, beginning of verse 4. He opposes himself and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So what do we need? We need a temple, right? That's going to be the end, is that he's going to set himself up as the temple of God. But we know that he should be on the scene and identifiable, even though he's not necessarily in power, because that power won't be really in full force until after the rapture. And that's given to us a little bit later in a few verses. It says, after this, he will get... It says, then, in verse 8, then the lawless one, after the restrainer is taken out of the way, and that restrainer is the Holy Spirit. If you don't know how I know that, it's because of the pronouns, masculine, feminine, neuter. Uh, so we know it's the Holy Spirit he's talking about. And so the lawless one will be revealed after the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, is taken away. The Holy Spirit can't leave without the church because he indwells us. So that means the church has to be removed before the man of sin has his full power. But he should be recognizable to us. How? How do you recognize the man of sin? Well, again, prophecy teaches us in Revelation 13, he's the false prophet. This is what you're looking for. And they give a list of things, and yet none of that applies to a man. Because Revelation 13 is talking about two different men, the Antichrist and false prophet. No way. Beasts, we already know, are nations, empires, and uh, uh, multiple heads are just told for us. These are other empires or other nations, and horns are kings, and so none of that applies. So how do we recognize a man of sin? To know that we are at the end of the age. Because all these other things say, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. So my inclination is to tell you it's not yet because there's a hurricane, there's wars and rumors of wars, there's famines, there's pestilence, and there's lots of deception. But then I look at the church and I say, well, the church is deceived. Now that's the falling away. They don't love the truth anymore. They love so-and-so. They, don't, they love what so-and-so says, not what the Bible says. That's why I don't want you to be a lover of my teaching. I want you to be a lover of God's word, his teaching. So, how are we going to recognize a man of sin? Does the Bible tell us what he's like? He's evil. He's bad. What's he like? He's deceptive. So that means, how many is he going to deceive? All right, true believers during our time, but he doesn't really rise to his fullness of power until after the, the church is gone, in which case the world is clamoring for someone like this. But we should be able, even before we leave, to be able to kind of say, he's here. There's evidence that he is here and waiting to take the international leadership that the man of sin requires. Now you hear various prophecy guys say, well, that means he has to be Jewish, he has to be of this descent, 
all these things, and I have no idea where they're getting any of that, because I can't find it in God's Word. So where's our description of the man of sin in the Bible, other than the man of sin? And John, of course, talks about there are many, many antichrists that come, uh, but then there is a capital A, Antichrist, which is an, a, a, against Christ, not the opposite of Christ, but against Christ. So how do we recognize him? Where's the list? Anybody know? Well, I don't want you to be ignorant. Turn to the book of Daniel. Because there's a list. Let's start in chapter 8. Uh, no, I don't have time for that. It's where it should be done. I'm going to have to jump forward. There's some of it there. Uh, let's jump forward to um, chapter 11. We have a huge amount of history in chapter 11. That's why it's such a long chapter. And we can identify all these guys throughout this history, north, south, who these kings are and what they do. We can put names and dates beside most of this chapter except for one portion. And that comes in to verse 35. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, make them white until the time of the end. Do you see that? Until the time of the end is still for the appointed time. Then, so we're waiting for the time. So now we have a list that's going to describe a king for the end of time, for the appointed time. What is the king that we're looking for? Who is this guy? What's he like? He shall do according to his own will. Number one, he's going to do whatever he wants. Number two, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He'll accept worship. Follow me more than any of your religions. He'll be atheistic, as we're going to see. He's going to call people away from that. He'll speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He's going to prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. So everything he touches is just golden. The guy is golden, isn't he? He prospers at whatever he touches. So you're finding that. We're not done. It keeps going. Verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. What does it mean to not regard the God of your fathers or the desire of women? He's going to abandon the worship patterns of his people, and he's just going to turn away from God altogether because he's made himself a God. And then he is not going to be interested in the desire of women. What does that make him? You're saying, well, my Lord. it makes him a homosexual, right? Okay, he does not, he's not interested in the desire of women. Nor does he regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. It's all about me, him. You're saying, well, I haven't, you haven't narrowed the field very much. <laughs> it's getting there. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. He shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. And at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. And it goes on and describes what's happening. And, but let's... Uh, with one enemy that he has. And look at verse 41. He shall enter the glorious land. Many countries shall be overthrown. These shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. 
He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury, destroy and annihilate many. He shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. And that end will be by Jesus Christ at his second coming. So the man of sin is described here in great detail. And I would contend with you that he is here, that we have someone that fulfills this. There are other portions as well that talk that I can't, don't have time to get to. That uh, you're not going to—he's going to come out of nowhere. You're not even going to know his lineage or heritage. You're not going to know who he is. Uh, he's going to come suddenly on the scene. He's going to come to prominence through no exploits of his own. He's just going to boom have power, and he's going to be described this. He's going to have access to. Incredible amounts to the treasuries of the world will eventually be put into his hand. So are we looking for a political entity or an economic entity? Ah. Suddenly all the treasuries of the world are going to be in his hand. So we're looking certainly at a political figure. He's called a king, but we also find that he has rule over the economies of the earth. And coming out of, and we would contend he's probably coming out of this final beast. So if the man of sin is on the scene, I would contend he is and, and can be identified, uh, has to be fully revealed, the church should be ready. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we should be looking for. The Bible says that's, these are the things, the falling away, the man of sin. You have all these other prophecies that will happen, uh, oh, 50 years before, 40 years before, 70 years before. But in terms of the right at the end, how do I know where I'm right at the end? All these other ones say we're within the generation. These give us generational information that this is the end of this age. The times and seasons are coming to a close. So we're waiting for this falling away. We're seeing it happen. And we're looking for a man of sin, a man of perdition to be revealed that fits not only this list, but a couple others in Scripture. And the church should be about that business of saying, that's him. Now, the church has done this a lot of times historically. Can any of you name some of the historical figures that have been called the Antichrist? Past presidents of the United States? That's too many. Hitler was called one. Who else? Henry Kissinger was one. For many, many years of my youth, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. A lot of prophecy te teachers taught that. He was Jewish, he had all his power, he, he, and it seemed like he was Henry Kissinger was the big guy everybody was supposed to be watching. Why is it, and we could go through back in time, and, and it was popes during the time of the Reformation, it was different popes were identified as the Antichrist. Um, why is it that the church was doing that? I say, well, they were all wrong. But why were they doing that? Huh? They, were look, they wanted the man of sin to be revealed so the Lord would come. They wanted Christ to come in their generation. But all these other things hadn't happened. There was no Israel in the, in the world. There was, there was no uh, talking pictures in the world. None of these other things were in the world. But they knew they should be looking for the man of sin, and they looked around and said, that's kind of like him. That's kind of like him. But none of them fulfilled these lists to the T. Okay? Most of the popes were, that they were fingering and saying, he's a man of sin, um, had 
loved children all over the city of Rome. And everyone knew it. So he obviously liked the desire of women. And so we have this uh, impartial fulfillments, but the desire of every generation of the church was to identify the man of sin because that would tell us that the Christ's coming is on, its, on the verge of happening. Well, now we have so much scripture completed. If we really want to finish our study of the times and seasons, what are we looking for? Well, the last thing that Paul tells the, the people in Thessaloniki is look for the man of sin. You should be able to spot him because you're not in the dark and you shouldn't be deceived. You shouldn't be so easily took by this guy. And, but notice who is took by the guy. Not just his own people, but it says Egypt, the Ethiopians, the, the who's the other country? Uh, seems like the only one that, did, that avoided him. So Egypt, the Libyans, Ethiopians, that's all northern Africa. All North Africa, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, in terms of historically, in Bible times, identifying those nations, you're basically calling about all of the northern part of Africa. Okay? They're going to, it says the only ones that are going to be escaped from his hand are going to be people in Moab, the prominent people of Ammon, and Edom. What country is that today? the country of Jordan. Okay? And so they're not going to be taken in on it, but everyone else around there is, particularly the North Africans. And so when we look at this, we're looking for that man of sin. There's a reason the church historically has always looked for him and even spoken the name. And I've spoken a name before, right? And I've had people laugh at me and say, oh, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. And I've had... People get disgusted at me. I've been yelled at. I've been, I've been rebuked. And I just smile and say, well, it's my job. To say that guy matches the description in this book with just a few exceptions of what he's going to do after Christ comes back. And yes, he was a present. And he is alive. And he's still very active. And so... He fits every description. So if he's on the scene, the falling away is happening, we know that the coming of Christ is on the very verge. He says, when you see these things, you know it's right at the door. It's knocking. Christ's coming. Christ's coming. That's the end of the times and seasons. But realize what's the majority position. What is the condition of the majority of the church? They're deceived. Many deceivers. And everyone will like the deceivers and they won't like the truth. And we want to be lovers of the truth in this very end of the seasons. Hope you've enjoyed this study for these weeks. And uh, I've enjoyed it because there are a couple things that were new to me as well. And I enjoyed the research that was part of it. Um, and getting better acquainted with some aspects of scripture that we really haven't visited, um, even though I might have had some tendencies toward it, I haven't really articulated it in my own mind of why aren't we doing this instead of that. So we'll look forward to seeing you September 11th. 
if we're not in heaven before then at the Feast of Trumpets. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness and the information that you give us. And Lord, we are foolish to ignore it. And to think that we can just uh, Google it and find out what we need to find out. Lord, uh, what error. Lord, help us to love your truth, to keep it dear to us, to internalize it, to spend time with it, to investigate it, to study and to meditate upon it and to just relish every chance we get to get together with others and talk about it. Lord, let that be the highlight of our life. And Lord, we know that in our heart we love too many of the things of this world too much. They consume too much of our time and energy and resources. And we ask for your forgiveness. And we ask you might help us, having understood the times and the seasons, to humble ourselves before you and to seek your kingdom that you'll be establishing soon. And we look forward to that. But we know that there will be a falling away. There will be deception. There will be hardship. There will be a necessity to stand and to pay a price. Lord, help us to be of that ilk, that we might uh, stand fast for your truth. In our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. Um, By the way, for the next few weeks, we are going to be doing a bioethics statement for our church. Um, We're going to do that as a group study. Rather than me just writing it and plopping it on you, asking you to approve it, the reason we are doing a bioethics statement is for the benefit of, for your benefit. Um, Most, uh, a lot of your employers are going to require a vaccine unless you have one of two reasons not to get it. What are those two reasons? Health reasons or religious reasons. So we are going to be um, putting on paper what our church really believes and has always believed in the area of bioethics. Uh, if you're not familiar with that term, it's gonna, that paper is not just we don't take vaccines. It has to be more substantial than that because our position is more substantial than that. Um, it's going to encompass birth control, abortions, euthanasia, uh, uh, end-of-life care, uh, all those kinds of things of what is our position in the engagement of those things? And it's also going to have to deal with uh, freedom of choice, that we don't impose this on our membership, but this is our position standard for what we believe God's Word teaches. But every person has the right to apply that to their life as they see fit. So we're not trying to write a paper to condemn everybody that got a vaccine or that had an abortion. We're saying that this is the biblical position, this is what we believe is God's best, and It'll give you a document to say, this is what I believe, and as a member of this church, um, I am claiming this as my religious position. So we want to put it in writing. We've taught it, but we don't have it in writing. So we're going to do that over the next three weeks. So I have statements that I have written out. Um, I have verses we'll study, but I I want us to study it together and make these statements our own, and then we'll bring a special business meeting, and we'll vote on that and formalize it so that then I can write letters for members of our church that ask, 
I need a letter saying that it is not in keeping with our religious beliefs to participate in this, okay? So we're going to be doing that the next three or four weeks. I think it'll be done in three weeks. And so we're hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a bioethics position to help it. And we already have one. KC is already on the block. So KC McKillop is already get vaccinated or you lose your job uh, unless you have a health mandate, health reason, or religious things. So, and I've been asked by the police officers, uh, Julie particularly, and her whole unit. I said, I don't know what your unit believes. Bring them to church. <laughs> so be uh, praying for uh, Sergeant Maycumber. And so I've already been asked to, to give letters of religious uh, exemption for them, and I want, I'm willing to write that, but it would be much superior for us to have a bioethics document that would be inclusive of that, and so of how far do we go, um, and I already deal with these things a lot of times in the hospital. Um, when you're dying and you have a living will, um, that usually falls on me to make sure that your living will gets implemented in the hospital. Um, you don't, don't trust a social worker to make that happen. And don't trust your nearest relative because I don't want him to die. And then it's all off the table. So um, I'm already implementing these things. And by the way, removing, if you take food and water from anybody, guess what happens to them? They die, no matter how old they are or how sick they are. You take away their food and water. That's why I always tell people, living well, you don't remove food and water. Now, if you intravenously are giving them food and water, well, that's extraordinary. But if they, but as long as they can eat and drink, you can't withhold that and say that's medical care because they don't want any extraordinary treatment. So we want to address some of those things in a bioethics paper, a statement, and then we can write those letters. Um, with we can already write those letters, so that is our belief position. But it'll be stronger because we'll have a bioethics statement as a church. So we're going to try to implement that in the next three weeks. I should have been on top of this and done this months ago, frankly. And I apologize for my laxity in getting on it. But I've had, like I said, I have two individuals already asking for it, necessitating it, and I'm probably going to land on a lot of you. If you're working in the government, you're probably going to get clobbered with that. School teacher, election official, um, fireman. You guys are going to get plastered with that. Eventually, it's going to come. So, healthcare probably is going to come too. So, okay. Thank you. Have a great night.